0: Like to ask for your attention. We're going to do a very honest Buddhist talk tonight, sort of hopefully with a beginning, a middle, and an end, and a textual reference. Um, I have in mind to speak about the Vitakka Santana Sutta, the twentieth discourse in the Middle Length Sayings. And as its title says, it is dedicated to the stilling of thoughts. I believe a most appropriate kind of topic for um, some of you guys who are here for many weeks and still having thoughts, and some of you guys are just arriving and probably still have a few of those left. So, and it is certainly useful for me to remind me of this as well. Occasionally, there still is a little bit of this. Um, So, the Vitaka Santana Sutta gives us um, a number of specific tools how to deal with thoughts. Now, these tools are to be used sparingly. They're preferably to thoughts that are tenacious, that are repetitive, that are of unwholesome nature, and that seem to pester us basically, that seem to come back and um, stop the mind from experiencing deeper stillness, deeper unification, deeper tranquility. Um, these are five ways, if you read the sutta, the sequence is slightly different. I I took the liberty to adjust the sequence because I believe this uh, particular adjustment does more accord with the economy of these tools. And the Sutta speaks generally names the tool, um, then gives an analogy for the tool and I will add some commentary to how this could be uh, phrased in psychological terms. Again, not every little stray thought deserves these tools. They are uh, to be used with circumspection because obviously the application of any tool entails effort, entails attention, entails uh, a certain risk. Sometimes tools don't work, Uh, sometimes you have uh, Work injuries, in terms of trying to apply tools to thought, a work injury would be you end up with a fat proliferation rather than freedom from that particular thought. Uh, you end up with a major doubt or a major story going on in your head about the nature of tools or the value of tools or Buddhism or maybe Irie's diagnosis would be more effective or maybe you should just follow the path of the red cloud, rather than kind of go for selfless Buddhism. You know, Many things can go wrong with the application of tools. Sorcerers, apprentices, uh, run high risks. So it's useful to un- contemplate that these tools are basically for stuff that keeps happening to you. Uh, if you do a retreat, it keeps happening to you day in, day out, day in, day out. You know? So what are these? The first of the tools is in many ways the most elegant and the most recommendable. And this first tool is called not paying attention. As you uh, will have heard from me speaking, uh, the term for attention is manasikara, as a component of mindfulness. Uh, while mindfulness is a lofty uh, mental condition that occurs not in every moment of our experience, manasikara, attention, is a more mundane Uh, mental function that occurs literally in every event of our experience. Uh, Usually uh, Manasikara is uh, welcomed if it is particularly associated with wholesome objects or with objects giving rise to wholesome qualities. There are no unwholesome objects just to be clear it is just that certain objects give rise to unwholesome states and those objects are obviously not recommended for the practice of Manasikara. But even that only holds true for so much because if unwholesome, you know, particular types of objects keep bothering you and giving rise to unwholesome states, sooner or later you will have to investigate what exactly goes on. So you can't really dedicate your attention only to states, to, to objects and things that give rise to unquestionably positive and wholesome responses. While this is preferable if you have a choice for the really bad stuff, you can't stay clean. Yeah? You have to be willing to get mucky and look at what really goes on there. If it's really deep stuff, you will need to wade in. Just waiting there and hoping it would stop till your, you know, till your parameters have come to fruition. Um, and hope you'll be spared this cup, uh, is not a very effective strategy for some types of uh, mental defilements. But back to our uh, first tool. Interestingly, our first tool is the opposite of manasikara. It is a manasikara. It is not paying attention. This time, not paying attention as a strategy is the easiest and most economical way how you can deal with thoughts that are distracting. The analogy that the sutta gives is as if you were walking, and something comes to meet you, and you just close your eyes. Yeah. Yeah. Which uh, you know may not may not be a sound piece of advice for managing traffic. Yeah, but in terms of meditating, some of the things you just close your eyes, and the thing you know the thought goes past, goes well, past your ears, or uh, I don't know where your thoughts, maybe some of you get come ahead, come at you like this, or they come at you like this. Um, Be interesting to find out. Uh, Either way, if you close your eyes, they just go onto the big pile where the old thoughts all have died. And closing your eyes or not paying attention is definitely the most effective way with easy thoughts. Thoughts that just have a slight bothersome quality, that are just distractive, babble, uh, the minds prattling away, the uh, easy, um, tenacious, but easy stuff. You know, nothing that has big statements, nothing that has a big charge. So just kind of close your eyes and let it go past, and then when it's past you open your eyes again. Not paying attention and not Entering into dialogue with the thought. There's a parliamentary procedure, I'm sure you have in this country as well. Uh, the parliament decides whether an item is put onto the agenda. And there is a decision whether something is put on the agenda. And sometimes there is a decision made that it is not even put on the agenda. Yeah? Um, German parliamentary procedure, they have a name for this. It's kind of literally, it's something, it's a. A decision to not enter into debate, which is a quite useful little decision. As a meditator, this is what you do with uh, this particular kind of thought. You make a decision to not enter into dialogue. That means you don't believe the thought. You don't try to convince the thought that it is wrong. You don't uh, get into conversation with that thought. Conversation would be something like, yeah, I hear you, but yeah, and then you go off. No, you just say, mm, mm, thank you very much. And then you kind of, you know, I, a little nodding of your head, maybe, maybe not bad. It's kind of the sort of nodding that says, yes, I know there is something. No, this is not a scent. No, I don't agree with you. It is not is I hear you, not I agree with you. Yeah? So you kind of imagine you sit here and you just kind of do light nodding with your head, sort of smiling mm, yeah, and then you feel the breeze of thoughts passing here just flowing past so as long as this technique works definitely this is by far the most preferable just taking the liberty to not enter into discourse think of yourself as the, the host of a party you kind of you say hello but then you don't actually talk with people, you let them enter. You take, make sure that they kind of go to the door, and then you turn back to the entry because you're expecting more guests. Yeah? You don't follow that particular guest and spend the evening with him. As a meditator, you'll be very careful with whom you spend the evening. Yeah? So just kind of a, a, a nodding acknowledgement, and then you stop paying attention to that thought. The image, I think, is quite Beautiful. Just close your eyes and wait till it's past. For some things that works quite well. For many things, unfortunately, it doesn't quite work that way. Yeah. So you need to resort to more uh, more robust means. So the second strategy of how to deal with tenacious thoughts that give rise to unwholesome states: it's you take the energy of the thought. So you're doing a kind of Aikido number on the thought. What you want is the thought's energy, something that gives usually rise to something unwholesome and then you turn it around to make it wholesome. So here you have to be a little more specific. If this is a thought connected with aversion, then usually aversion is triggered by people. Well, it's rare that aversion is triggered by trees or so. Most people are not spontaneously averse against trees most people feel their aversion is triggered by fellow human beings. Aversion usually is an interspecies thing. Yeah, it's kind of you stay with your own sort of people. These are the ones who get your ghost goat mostly. Yeah, it's people generally people who are here. Yeah, so it's your loved ones, fellow meditators, whatever people whom you actually live with. Generally, you're not so aversed against. Uh, all the people who are living in Japan, or all the people who live out there uh, on the he- outer Hebrides, or so it's, it's usually people whom you, with whom you have some form of sense contact who do things or who trigger perceptions in your mind, or who um some actually you can find a lot of aversion coming on when you look into your m- inbox. Yeah, so some email can trigger quite a bit of aversion in, in my mind, certainly. Um, what can you do? So one of the things you can do if aversion arises, you have to connect the uh, textbook teaching to deal with the aversion in the suttas, particularly in the commentaries, is metta. The Visuddhimagga recommends the practice of metta. Now, I don't know how it is for you, but for me, aversion and meta rarely go together well. To be honest, meta has never been particularly effective for aversion. Simply, um, when aversion already has arisen, uh, it's kind of difficult to conjure up meta, to put meta on top of the aversion. Yeah? It has always reminded me a little bit of a cow pad with sugar coating. Yeah. Kind of it yeah, it has a thin veneer of sugar, but basically it's fundamentally still a cow pad, yeah. (laughs) And you know, any prolonged exposure to that experience will make its cow padness kind of percolate through. So I have always found that meta as an intervention technique for aversion is not very effective. As a prophylactic it's brilliant. And that's probably how it is understood, or that's probably why it is in the commentaries. And in even at least uh, a number of instances in in the suttas as well, you find a recommendation that if a mind is practicing uh, metta, then it is more difficult for aversion to arise. And if aversion has arisen, it cannot pl- put down its roots. So. There is great validity in the practice of metta for aversion, but as a uh, prophylactic, if that is the English word, but not as an intervention technique. As an intervention technique for aversion, I have found compassion to be a lot more effective. Connecting with the being that triggers my aversion and seeing in that being mm, uh, humanity, a being like myself that seeks happiness and tries to avoid pain. That has had losses and failures in his or her life. That is basically afraid of the very same things I am afraid of. That will need to die. That will. Um, that is capable of loving, and that fears that loved ones suffer, or disappear, or fall ill, or uh, or come to harm. Or so. If I can conceive of somebody who has triggered my aversion. As a fellow suffering human being, it is much more likely that my aversion subsides than when I try to convince myself that I extend loving kindness to that person. Simply because when I recognize from knowing my own suffering, his or her suffering, it is a lot easier to connect with this human being. I resemble that human being a lot more than I am unlike him or unlike her. Even your worst enemies, you. You very likely resemble a lot more than you may admit to yourself. So touching his or touching her humanity on a very deep level, his happiness seeking, his vulnerability to pain and suffering, his fear of loss, death, rejection, abandonment, all this stuff, makes it very likely that I can connect with this being on a deeper level. And the point I have had about the version seems to fall away. Ultimately, you're not so different than I am. I cannot deject you from my heart any further because I recognized your humanity. I recognized our kinship in a very deep and profound way. Compassion is probably the most powerful way to connect with each other. It is the... Quality of the heart, the quality or the resonance of empathy of our heart that crosses most easily uh, the boundaries of culture, religion, language, color of skin, perceived race, um, whatever you may find distinguishes you from this or that person, compassion is very likely, very powerfully capable of. bridging this, in very immediate ways. So, for an aversed mind, our second strategy would call for trying to establish a link with the suffering of my other. Yeah? Is there? Can I see, can I connect with that part in his or her life that is about suffering? And when I have connected with that part, Will I really be able to invest further in aversion? Why should I be aversed against somebody who is so much like me? To whom I'm actually connected via my power of empathy. Who I recognize, in whom I recognize so much of myself. So this is a a very powerful way of taking the, the wind out of aversion's sails. So I get the energy of the thought. I take I, I use the, the thought, the perception of the other arising, this person, that person, and instead of following the thought into an aversive mood, I try to just rejig the perspective a tiny little bit so that rather than me looking at the thing that triggers my aversion is me looking at what really makes this human being similar to me. It's yeah. so just a slight shift. It's a slight shift shift of perspective and something different happens. If my unwholesome response is to do with greed, with desire, then it may be necessary, if that greed is directed to people, it may be necessary to look a little closer at this person. You know, much of what we get besotted by when we fall uh, prey to the attraction of other people is actually quite superficial. Yeah? Yeah, I believe in English you have a saying that beauty is skin deep. Yeah? So you know, much of what we perceive to be beauty, and remember, beauty is a perception, it's not an absolute truth. Yeah, It's a constructed piece of mind. Yeah? There is no absolute beauty in the universe. The universe is construed. What we perceive to be beautiful in the universe generally hinges not just on what we perceive, but also what we carefully and studiously airbrush out. You know, there's a lot of editing going on in the perceptual process. And much of what we perceive to be beautiful and attractive owes as much to editing out things as to actually a pristine sort of beauty being there. So when I find that this mind is desirous and uh, covetous and uh, wishes to engage with thoughts of uh, desire and uh, is pulled by somebody, I may just look a little closer. Yeah? Often enough, uh, that which is beautiful is just a matter of distance. Yeah? That pretty skin, if you just look a little closer, suddenly it starts to have a few blotches, or it starts to uh, actually not be so pretty anymore. It's quite shocking looking at my shaving mirror the other day in a mirror that was five times magnified it's, you know what felt like a real clean shave she's kind of looking at this at five times magnification it was hor- quite a horrific experience it was it was it was not smooth at all it was a you know it was a mess it was kind of little bits of peeled epidermis hanging out <laughs> protruding and you know what felt to my uh, unsuspecting sort of touch yeah did a good job this morning Uh, kind of looking at this, actually a little more scrutiny, seemed to be quite, um, you know, it seemed a little battlefield there, actually. (laughs) And it did not seem at all smooth. So often enough, what appears beautiful and what evokes attraction uh, is a question of perspective and distance. And and just shifting a little bit perspective or shifting a little bit distance or playing a little bit with the context, yeah? Yeah. Uh, you know, those beautiful blonde hair look somewhat different if they lie in my soup or just if I find them in the sink somehow they just decontextualized suddenly some of the allure seems to have gone lost, yeah, just a little rejigging or sometimes it's just necessary to stay a little longer attentive and see. Yeah that lovely smile just ends a little bit too early, or uh, it just kind of kicks in before the joke actually has landed, or, you know, we begin to notice little incongruences. And this is a particular brand of practice when you actively seek what is not attractive. And generally, we don't actually need to do a lot of seeking for this. Human beings are not terribly pretty for most of the time. For most of their lives, you know, babies can be quite pretty. Baby photos are really, really pretty. But babies themselves are not always pretty. Yeah. Yeah. We, if you have had to do anything with babies, you know they can look really convincingly pretty and cute on photographs. And in certain moments, you know, when they're asleep and things like that. But, you know, there's many, many moments when they're not asleep and they're not pretty. Yeah. So, This is not just a practice that is for monks afraid of their own sexuality and they have to kind of do weird things to the perception of the feminine. This is generally how this practice is handed down. And there is probably historically some justification for this suspicion that uh, that plays a role. But in fact, you know, we're all irrespective of our uh, age and sexual persuasion, or our gender, uh, we are prone to feel attracted and desire is likely to arise in, uh, ab- about things that we feel to be beautiful, attractive, or, or uh, in, in, in some other ways desirable. So, Since the underpinning quality that gives rise to that desire is perceptual, and perceptions are construed, highly, highly construed, um, not just by the, object, uh, the objective state of something. Yeah? The third plate of spaghetti can look objectively pretty similar to the first one, but because you have eaten already two, uh, it is very likely that it gives a lot less rise to desire in your mind. Not because it looks less attractive, but because your hunger, your appetite has gone down. So we enter every situation with, from a particular vantage point. Uh, My decision-making when I'm in pain or when I have had sleep deprivation is a lot less reliable than it is anyway. (laughs) You may know this from yourself, that you come to very different conclusions when you think about a particular topic under different circumstances. The idea for a long and Uh, brisk walk around the loop maybe, a lot more attractive after uh, a long sit where you felt a little restless than when you just had done such a walk, you know, and you're still sweating and panting. That thought of such a walk is a lot less attractive. So even though it's the same loop, even though uh, it's, it's apparently the same body actually, just a little shift in the state of that body makes the perception of the very same thing quite different. So learning to play with uh, the perceptual underpinnings for desire or aversion is very powerful. If the desire is focused on things, then we may consider the disadvantage of these things. We may consider that these things are expensive, that they take a lot of effort, a lot of space, a lot of maintenance, that we need to work. How many hours do we have to work? How many hours do you have to work for an iPhone? Just kind of count it 's quite a few hours that go in for most people, yeah? or how many hours a new car, how many hours of work, and then I have to add the hours I look for a parking space and the hours I work for to pay the taxes or the hours I drive the thing to the garage, the hours I stay in a traffic jam. <laughs> It takes quite a bit of life, that time-saving device, isn't it? That gets you from A to B a lot faster, so that your life is a lot longer. So, you consciously consider this advantageous aspect of having, or owning, or using the thing that you're feeling besotted by, that you feel pulled into. You're trying to establish that it is impermanent. This, too, will not last forever that this tool is probably not going to make you happy. Certainly not as happy as you secretly hope it would. You know that even if you technically own it, by law, it doesn't actually mean you really do own it. Yeah? You may have to go and uh, stay some other place, so you can't take it along with you. Or it may be stolen from you or um, you may not be able to use it anymore. So you you contemplate these possibilities and see whether the attractiveness diminishes by this thing. If your thoughts are just murmuring chattering, sort of running commentary on the universe kind of thing, rehashing last week's advertisement and little snippets of dialogue that keep running your head. You may contemplate the brevity of your life. You may contemplate the preciousness of your existence. You may contemplate how hard you work to be able to be here, for example. You may contemplate that you do not know how long you live, you may contemplate that some people have died younger than you are now. And this may bring up a a quality that Buddhist teachings call Sangvega, a sense of urgency. Something that touches your heart and that makes you want to deepen your understanding, that makes you want to free yourself. It's one of the few emotions that the Buddha actually encouraged that we feel. And it's very difficult to translate it. It a mix of things. One of them is a sense of urgency, one of them is really being shaken up by futility, meaninglessness and our collusion in the pursuit of things we know finally that they don't make us happy and they don't make us more free. And uh, there's a kind of a a meaninglessness that stares at us and the emotion of Sangvega covers all these grounds. It is a kind of horror at time lost horror at our own capacity to dissipate energies and live by things which don't really have priority. It is um, dismay at our own collusion with conditions that do not make us free. Um, And at the same time, it is usually giving rise to a sense of urgency and the wish to practice, to deepen our practice and to free ourselves. So anything that gives rise to this quality Samvijati means to shake, means to uh, shake up. The the Greek word catharsis is in there in some way or technically ekplexis, the the shaking up. In French you say scue, something has shook me up, uh, meaning something has rearranged and uh, rearranged the perspective out of which I look onto this world. The Buddha speaks of places for such shaking up and he he mentions the four the four pilgrimage sites. Yeah? The four sites he deemed to be good places for followers of the Buddha to visit because they touch the heart and give rise to a sense of urgency and practice. So anything that gives rise to such a sense of Sangvega that takes us out of the prattling mind, takes us out of the, the babbling mind. The ongoing chatter, just filling the sky, filling the inner space. So these are the big areas. Desire, then uh, aversion, and just the the form of ignorance that shows up as having no task, having no sense of urgency. We're encouraged with this second means to gain from the thought, take the energy of the thought and turn it round. So, for desire, we turn it round into a a practice to heighten the perception of the unattractive. Uh, With aversion, we try to connect on the level of compassionate empathy with that which triggers aversion in us. And um, if it's about things that we desire, then we contemplate their impermanence, we contemplate their contingency, we contemplate their disadvantages, Uh, And the fact that they do not really promise, if we look closely, happiness. If we're just squandering our time by engaging with thoughts that are of no particular charge, but that still are powerful enough to keep us from experiencing stillness of mind, then we need to bring home more close. The time is finite. Attention is finite. I will die. I will not survive this. This is the good bit. I may not get stronger. I may not get healthier. I may not have better conditions to practice. The idea that I have a lot of time for this later, let me have some more fun now, Yeah, is a treacherous thought. So bringing to mind these things helps to dissipate some of the uh, discursive uh, energies that take the mind away from the possibility of stillness. So, what is the third tool? What is the third tool by which I can negotiate tenacious and uh, thoughts connected with unwholesome stuff? The third tool is interesting. Ah, by the way, let me give you the analogy for the second one. The analogy is as if a carpenter or a carpenter's apprentice uses a small peg to remove a coarse peg. The image that something alike of a finer nature, a wholesome thought, removes a coarser thought, removes a coarser peg, an unwholesome thought. Another image would be, If you have a thorn, you remove the thorn with a needle. So the thorn and the needle in some way do resemble each other, but obviously with the needle you can remove the thorn that has entered your fingertip. And obviously the idea is not that you replace the thorn with the needle once you've (laughs) but that you put down the needle once the thorn is removed. I think this is quite a plausible analogy that Something of a similar nature, but of a more refined granularity is taking, helping you to uh, rid yourself of a particular unwholesome pattern. For the third uh, tool, uh, we have the recommendation, or let me start with the analogy. The The, the analogy is quite stark. It says as if a young man or a young woman, fond of adornment and fond to appear beautiful, were going to a festivity and instead of putting in adornments, instead of putting a necklace, they put a dead animal around their necks. So, a dead dog or a dead snake. Or it's quite telling, isn't it? You want to appear beautiful and pretty, and instead of doing something to make you beautiful, you do something to make you ugly. It has complete opposite effect. You wish, but then You do a performative uh, contradiction. You do something that is going to make everybody appalled at your appearance. So the uh, tool is that I make clear to myself that if I give this particular thought my energy and my attention and let it run and consent to this thought taking root and taking its course and feeding associations, that if I follow this thought, I, what I do is counter to my better knowledge. It is uh, contrary to my intentions and it is contrary to my well-being. I appeal to myself that what I'm in the process of doing right now is completely against everything I know to make me happy, content, clear and awake. In other words, I'm at loggerheads with myself. I bring to mind my contradiction. This is powerful. It's an appeal. Uh, The Buddha was realistic enough to know that there are different voices in there, speaking all from the position of I. And that some of these uh, voices can be quite uh, conflicting. He was quite aware that we are highly conflicting desire systems. And sometimes this desire wins and sometimes that desire wins. So his suggestion was to actually appeal to our knowledge and say, look, there is the thought that gives rise to such and such feeling, but actually you know better. If you follow that thought, if you follow that energy, you will land with that and that emotion, you will end up with that and that behavior, and this is completely not where you want to be. It also presupposes that we have had such thoughts. And I don't know how it is for you, but many of my thoughts are not particularly original. They have been around for a while. I've been playing with them. I've joined them, I've colluded with them, I've consented with them, I've... I, I rode them out. I've paid my dues in terms of credulity, followed them and landed you know, beached usually on some cliff, yeah, some form of dukkha cliff. This particular thought, that cliff, and this particular thought, that cliff. You know, if I guess, it's similar for you. I don't know your mind, but I would expect that you have been beached a few times as well. You know, think of a beached whale. Uh, it's just kind of suddenly you find yourself ooh, run aground, or more dramatically thrown onto a cliff. Uh, So, appealing to ourselves, listen, listen, don't do what you're just about to do, because remember how it felt last time. Remember, this is precisely how it begins. I know it sounds justified, but look, it felt really justified last time, and remember how it felt afterwards. It didn't do the job, it didn't make you happy, it didn't restore justice in the world, Um, it didn't deliver. Or it did deliver, but it came at such a high price that you regretted it, you know, three quarters of a year afterwards or even longer. So acknowledging the disparity between the impulse that has arisen and given rise to a thought and the recall of the consequences of such thoughts. Acknowledging the disparity, giving us a better chance, stopping the impulse and giving us a moment to (gasps) take stock and say, do I really want to join this? And then something in us might say, no, no, I'm not going to join this. Thank you very much. Followed that one too often. I'm too old for this one now. (laughs) or uh, I still recover from the last time and I I think I skipped this one. So there is a possibility of our minds, you know, we're not just stupid. We know a few things. We've learned a few things. We have retentive memories. So. Appealing to ourselves in this way both honors or validates our, our impulse. This is important. Uh, validating is the wrong term. Acknowledges. Yeah? It says, oh yeah, this is happening. If we don't acknowledge, you're much more likely to enact something. You repress and deny as long as possible. And then when the thing has a certain intensity, it just washes over you and then you act out. So acknowledgement is generally a better, it's a little unflattering, but it's generally a lot better option than trying to not have it as long as possible and then get washed over by it and spilling over, enacting it. So, I think that's a good one. Calling to your mind that you have done this before and that following, giving your energy, your time, your the preciousness of your attention to this thing, that you know will take you into a form of suffering. The fourth strategy is quite nifty. Uh, The fourth strategy, uh, let me again start with the analogy uh, that says, as if a man was running and recalled, oh, I am running, how if I would run, how if I were to run a little more slowly? And then he ran a little more slowly. And he would think, oh, I'm still running. If it is possible, why can't I try to walk? And then he started to walk. And then he would walk slowly. And then finally he would stop. So that's the analogy of the fourth strategy. The fourth strategy says, "Um, I have possibilities to direct my attention to the stilling of the sankara of the thought. In other words, I can modulate the energy that propels my thought. There is an acknowledgement there that thoughts are propelled by sankaras. Sankaras, uh, probably emotion in this context, impulses in this context. Wishes, safety, power, recognition, uh, enjoyment, uh, um, revenge, you know, these will all be examples of sankara. So our thoughts usually are uh, the most noticeable aspect of Sankaras of such a nature that give vent to a particular emotional drift. And we can touch almost behind the thought into the emotion that pushes that thought ahead. And we can maybe modulate that thought. So maybe you can't stop the thought, you can't make it go away. You're closing your eyes doesn't make it go away like it did in the first technique. But maybe you can do funny things with that thought, yeah? Maybe you can speed it up. And then suddenly it sounds high pitched and then the thought is a lot less credible, yeah? You can do funny little games with that thought. Or you can dramatize it, you know? Some of my thoughts, they take, they lose all their seriousness when they're dramatized, you know? There you are at breakfast and then you say, "Uh wrong kind of jam and then you say, okay, wrong kind of jam this can't continue that way you know this planet has to be left behind There's so the wrong kinds of jam here and you realize this is ridiculous isn't it you don't want to leave behind a planet just because they didn't give you the wrong kind of jam and somehow you've taken the wind out of the seriousness you know the seriousness complaint yet again deprived of the right sort of jam here you can't take that serious anymore because you've you've kind of exaggerated it. You've made a game out of it. You've you've turned it into a burlesque. You know? um, sometimes uh, thoughts can be talked to. You know they can be modulated by say, oh, you really you're really complaining, are you? you know? Rather than engage on the issue. You know, and then you kind of say. oh, you really sound angry, don't you? Is it? What did it get you? It's not that little thing that you're complaining about, isn't it? You're a little, you're a little myth because five minutes earlier something has happened. Is that it? Yeah. You kind of go into a sort of a parental mode, or a sort of elder sibling mode. You know, halfway supportive. Yes, I like you. No, I don't believe you. Kind of thing. Yeah. You take a, a more adult attitude to your thought rather than just either denying it, or arguing with it, or believing it. You say, ah, I hear, this is what you say, but this is not really what you mean. Here. What you mean is something slightly different. So you, you kind of take an attitude and start to modulate the energy that has propelled the thought. Sometimes it helps to uh, turn these thoughts into voices. I, I do a lot of this. I, I try to listen to the pitch of a thought. And while the thought's message can be quite quite sort of rational, quite sort of convincing and plausible and well-argued, and, and then you listen to the voice and you realize, oh, there's a real, real little nagging voice in there, isn't it? There's a real little nag in there. This is not as plausible as it sounds. You know? this, is, this is some kind of whinging going on in there. I would, if if this voice I heard in the radio or on the neighboring table or in the office, I wouldn't believe this voice. I hear the emotion in this voice. And people with that emotion, you don't believe. You don't entrust whatever, however plausible their sentence structure is and however impeccable their, their syntax is and their argument construction. Uh, that nag somehow doesn't, I don't buy it. Yeah? This is rancor or this is this is pettiness so this is this is somebody peeved who wants to regain control or this is somebody who wants to vent his anger so listening to the voice of the thought sometimes gives the thought away rather than listening to the melody you listen to the sound yeah just you know what's the sound like There are sounds that kind of come high-pitched and whinging, and there are sounds that come kind of grumbling from some below the kidneys. And once you hear this, you know you can't can't trust this. You can't trust this. So you have to find out how you can negotiate meeting the thought in your mind in a different way than just kind of on a sort of text level, you know. You don't get these thoughts texted neatly. I expect, you know, but you get them conveyed, usually with some, with some uh, flavor. You know, there's a, there's a dash of this or a dash of that in it. And listening to the uh, subtone, uh, this uh, you know the the, the interlinear bits, uh, listen to the uh, the undertones or the undertow of that particular thought gives you often a more clear idea where this is coming from and what's happening there. So this fourth technique asks our skill and our responsibility to actually engage with thought, not on a front level, but engaging with the energy behind that thought and trying to modulate that. Now you may not even be able to stop this, but just turning, say, uh, a complaining and unhappy, uh, never ending voice that speaks of my personal victimization, just turning this thought into a parrot, just a grubby, filthy old parrot who kind of curses, yeah? And he looks really ugly. And you say, Okay, I, I know you. You're living on my veranda. If I have visitors, I tell them, Don't. Get scared, don't believe him. you know he's really a bad old parrot. We're not going to kill him, but we certainly don't believe him. you know, just disregard him. you know he'll be squawking away there in his corner, and as soon as he has visitors and he has, he believes to have an audience, he will you know he will really perk up and kind of spout his peace. Yeah. But it's just an old you know uh, an old, ugly parrot. So let's not believe him. Let's not pay attention to him. And suddenly that thought has lost all its power. You have a few parrots there in your are uh, but basically you don't really believe all this. You know? And you can live with old parrots. I've got quite a few old parrots. And uh, you know they live out their day. I don't expect them to shut up. I don't. But they don't get center stage. I don't let them do the driving. I don't consult them. And I, I don't pay attention to them. So maybe you turn some of your thoughts into little creatures in your airy, um, if you want, if that is of any use. Or you may find something more smart than this, an image, a strategy to which you can uh, resort when thoughts come up that you do know are, are not very healthy or wholesome or useful or effective or that they take your energy away and that you can't stop immediately, but at least you can somehow contextualize them in a way that they are not doing damage, that they make less collateral, that they don't take center stage, that they don't siphon off your energies. Usually that takes a kind of skillful engagement. You need to play roles maybe. You need to uh, learn to be a bit cheeky. So. Sometimes cheekiness really helps, you know, kind of, I have a few thoughts they are kind of quite pompous, but this is the voice of rationalism speaking now, here we are. And then you kind of, you say, really? You know, let me show your face. I don't think you're true. I think you're just a pompous little old parrot. Yeah. And then you kind of, suddenly you see there's a parrot there. I think, Thank you. Parrot corner for you. What else? And you're back in your meditation game. So strategy four asks us to take responsibility and exert our powers, even though they may be limited in such a way that we weaken the pattern, yeah? that we decontextualize the pattern, that we don't take the pattern for face value, and that we gradually get a running person to be a standing person. Step by step, using the navigation space we have, uh, exerting the influence we have, that is not influence that manages to stop, it's not almighty, but it's an influence that gradually, step by step, little by little, we can start to influence this in a really big way. The last strategy, and it is also the least desirable strategy, is uh, simple, it is... The analogy uh, I believe says it all, it is a strong man grabbing a weaker man by the shoulders and pinning him down to the ground. And what the sutra literally says is, uh, with teeth clenched and tongue pressed against the gum, he subdues mind by mind. In other words, repression. We repress an impulse. That may be necessary. Just to know, uh, repression is obviously uh, has bad press, but um, it's, uh, it's a c- civilizing influence. I'm very uh, grateful if you repress certain impulses. So, say, If you start having the impulse to hit your neighbor here while we meditate, I'm really grateful if you're willing to suppress that impulse. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, our safety and our trust hinges on our willingness to uh, suppress such impulses. It has to be very clear. That's what makes living together uh, possible for us. We don't just snatch each other's food from the plate. Yeah, When somebody comes past with a plate, we think there's something nice on there. We don't, you know, muscle in at the uh, washing up line. We don't go and nick each other's pillows or so from the neighboring room. <laughs> we don't do these sort of things. And. No hitting in public or in private. Yeah? Um, so, uh, to be precise, suppression is a necessary skill. So there are impulses, particularly destructive impulses, sometimes cheeky impulses. Uh, we need to be willing to suppress them for the sake of the greater good, for the sake of the greater safety and the greater harmony. Um, what the Sutta teaches us, there are thoughts that have such a violence and such a charge that we cannot allow them. We cannot allow them even to stay in our mind. We, they're destructive. Either they're going to uh, fill us with rage, or they're going to fill us with desire, or they're going to fill us with despair, and they will make us act out in some unfortunate ways. And such thoughts we need to have both the willingness and the capacity to basically suppress. Now, <coughs> there are distinctions in how you suppress or how you, how you displace things. You know? Psychology teaches us there is a difference between suppression and displacement. Now, Suppressing is when you uh, see something unacceptable coming up of such a violence that this cannot be held in your space and you have to bury it. And you bury it and you plant a flag and you know something has been buried there. We have to sooner or later go back there when things have cooled down and look what has happened there under the flag. Denial is doing the same procedure without the flag. It means nothing has happened there. There was no problem ever. All is hunky-dory. We're safe again. This hasn't taken place. No. It hasn't happened. That is not a really good thing. That makes it impossible that as meditators and as introspective practitioners we can go back to and do some unearthing when we have a little more resources or we've got a few friends along or we're, we have cooled off a little bit and then we can actually go and investigate what has happened there. So if you do suppress, uh, please you plant a flag. It's necessary to know what you suppress. If you just displace and then pretend nothing has happened, uh, these are the sort of things which will haunt you, yeah um, as many of you know one of the in a in a transitory universe where things are impermanent, one of the safest way to preserve things is to uh, uh not feel them or trying to not feel them and not have them. This is a exquisite conservatory preservative, yeah yeah. Trying to not have feelings, for example, is a, almost a safeguard that you will have that feeling for a long time. It'll be sort of in a half frozen state and every time it warms up a bit you kind of go into a panic freeze mode and you pack it away and that, that way it will last a lot longer than when you uh, would have been willing to just hold it and bear with it and weather it and let it go its course. So it is necessary if we do suppress, and I believe it is necessary to suppress suppress certain things, uh, you will need to set a flag there and, f- and signal that something has taken place there that will need further investigation. Obviously suppressing is not very elegant, it's muscular, it takes effort and energy, and it um, is not very peaceful. It's not going to help your samadhi if you have to suppress a lot. It'll use a lot of sleep and energy. So suppressing things is really not an effective way to be free. It's also not really um, a good way to be happy. Every time you get close to the basement, you know, something is rattling the bars there and then you're scared. You're running away, scared back to the the attic, (laughs) trying to not have anything to do with what's in the basement. But every time you kind of try to go back to your a ground floor and living space and walk into the garden something is rattling down in the basement. This is not a very peaceful way. So that last strategy is obviously to use most sparingly but it's good that if it is in place, if push comes to shove, that you can resort to uh, clenching your teeth, pressing your tongue against the uh, palate and uh, crunch mind with mind. It's good to know that you can do this. Um, That gives you possibilities of going close to things when you know you can do this. That makes it safer for you to investigate. And investigation entails a negotiated type of safety. Unless we have some safety and trust that we can create safety, it will be very risky to do introspection, investigation and examination. Yeah. So before you can deal with something, generally the first step is you need to establish confidence that you can stay out of it before you can seriously deal with it. Otherwise it's called obsession, it's not called working with it or dealing with it. It's just called indulging in it or marinating in it. Yeah? And that takes a lot of time, and it makes the mind unpeaceful, and it often fills us with a sense of unhappiness, despair, lack of faith, and uh, uh, it's not very good for our self-respect. So consider these five tools when when you're dealing with thoughts. Uh, My suggestion would be try them in this sequence if they kind of come at you, and you just close your eyes and see what happens. If they're no longer there, you've won. If they're not, if they keep coming back, and if you discern the the uh, the emotional energy behind them, the desire or the aversion energy, or just a, the the uh, ignorance energy, then you may want you may want to apply one of those perceptual strategies, you know, turning things around in ways that make them look less attractive or turning things around that somebody who made you averse actually begins to be somebody whom you resemble or with whose pain you can connect or if things look really attractive or desirable you find out you know how much of a bother they would be or how hard they would make you work or how long uh, you would have to pay off debts or how how well that they're probably a lot less gratifying than they might uh, look like from your vantage point, Uh, or that you finally can't own them. The third strategy would be acknowledging your values and acknowledging your better self, basically, to what you already know about yourself and that this impulse is counter to everything you know, to everything you have understood, everything you hold dear. The fourth strategy is using your skill, your upayas, your skill and means to influence the pattern of of thought. Get in touch with the energy and modulate the energy in such a way that it becomes less credible, less alluring, less dispiriting, uh, less serious. Strategy five is that your willingness to basically suppress an impulse of which you know is destructive towards yourself or destructive to other people. Hmm. If you want to consult the text, uh, middle length saying, Vitaka Santana Sutta M20. Good. Thank you for your attention.